The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. Christ. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Let's start off in a word of prayer. Pray with me. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet. Your word is a light unto our path. And so I I pray, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us hearts to follow you in Christ's name. Amen. I'm curious, have you ever witnessed what you would consider to be a severe overreaction to something? I'm sure you have. I remember one from my upbringing. Um, I knew a boy named Blaine. He was a friend of mine, only boy that I knew named Blaine. He was rather unnoticeable. He was small-ish. Well, unnoticeable except for his frequent changing of haircuts. He went from having a spike, if you remember that, to a chili bowl, back to a spike, back to a chili bowl, back and forth. I never really sported either. It's probably a good idea. But at school one day, I found out something new I didn't know about Blaine, and that's that he had a bad temper. We were in the hall, and another boy who I knew, uh, didn't like Blaine much. And he came up to him and insulted him. He started with what every boy often starts with, a your mama joke. I'm not going to say any on Mother's Day. It's blasphemy. And Blaine didn't respond. And so he followed with one of those types of insults like, my dad could beat up your dad type comments. And it was fascinating. Blaine didn't say anything. As a matter of fact, after the boy made fun of his dad, he immediately responded with rage. Fists, kicks, trying to tackle, just exploded. And I was standing there not knowing what to do. Do I intervene? Do I not? I heard what the boy said. Blaine's my friend. And it dawned on me, there's something that little boy didn't know, a secret. Blaine's father had abandoned his mother and him and his little brother and never came back home, just left. And so what happened in that moment was that this unknowing little boy had done something very incendiary. He had pointed into a place in Blaine's life where something precious to him that was missing was being exposed, and it threatened every part of him. And you know, that same phenomenon is happening in our passage today. 
there's something apparently incendiary about whatever Jesus says and reveals here because this passage is bookended. The the beginning of it, they're deliberating whether or not Jesus is demon-possessed. And then at the end of it, it says they took up stones to stone him. And yet when we look at this passage as a whole, we look at Jesus' actual words, it might be confusing, like a severe overreaction. Because all Jesus has been doing is talking about being a shepherd of his people who are sheep, that he knows them, that he cares for them, that he protects them, that he even lays down his life for them. And so it seems like a a severe overreaction that after he would finish this, they would pick up stones to stone him. Why was there such opposition to these words? The truth is, like Blaine, something precious is being exposed and threatened in them. Jesus tells a secret. And when he does, it calls into reality something that enrages and threatens them. And I got to tell you, this is a reality that will always enrage some, but to others, will offer an incredible deep sense of security and peace. So this morning, first, let's discuss the secret and then the security. The secret. If you're familiar with John's gospel, it progresses and there's increasing opposition towards Jesus, particularly from the religious leaders. They're they're mesmerized, but they're afraid of the works that he's able to do. And John's gospel especially highlights the miracles of Jesus to point this out. As the passage tells us here, they tend to dismiss his works. But they also dismiss his words, even though they find his teaching to be especially authoritative. They can't deny it, but they're sometimes confused by the imagery, the metaphors, the parables. But this is not one of those times. They ask a direct question and they get a direct answer. Look again at the passage in verse 24. The Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you were the Christ, tell us plainly. It's a loaded request. The the Christ was the anointed one, Christos in Greek. It's the long-awaited Messiah in Hebrew, Mashiach. And this, this Christ, this Messiah, was to be the human embodiment of God's sovereign power promised to come through the line of King David. The, the Christ Messiah would be God's anointed king who would deliver his people and accomplish lasting security and peace, shalom, by extending his rule throughout all the nations. The Christ would be the one through whom God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, as we pray every week. So why ask Jesus this pointed question right here and right now? Well, because of what Jesus was just talking about that we think is inconsequential. He declares himself to be the good shepherd of God's sheep. And to the Jewish ear, the shepherd had strong messianic undertones. It wasn't just about nurture, care, sacrifice, and faithfulness. They heard it with a wider lens. It was borderline blasphemy. Biblically and historically, only Yahweh was referred to as the shepherd of Israel. We see this with the patriarchs way back in the Old Testament. So also in the poets, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. We also see this very emphatically in the prophets. 
Often the Messianic prophecies, when they talk about the Messiah, talk about him as a shepherd-like figure. Only those whom God anointed could carry on that title or fulfill that role. And Jesus, in this sermonette about the good shepherd, is drawing to himself divinity and messianic promise. And so they say, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly who you are. How does Jesus answer? Verse 25. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. The secret's out. It's, it's officially declared Jesus's divine sovereignty. But he says, I told you and you don't believe. I've already told you this before. It's already been said. If you read just a little back in John's gospel, in John 5, Jesus calls God his father. And they become enraged. In John 6, Jesus plainly says that he is the one who has come down from heaven like manna from the sky. And guess what? They become enraged. And in John 8, it, it kind of climaxes. He takes on the sacred name of God and says, before Abraham existed, I am. Highlighting his eternal nature and making himself one with God. And at the end of that chapter, they take up stones to stone him. So here we are in chapter 10, and it's the same line of thought, and it's the same type of questioning. They already know the answer. It draws into reality that this question isn't really about confusion. It's about opposition. They don't want him to be their Messiah. Why such opposition to Jesus? Friends, it's Jesus' Messiahship is, is not neutral. It, it demands something from them. And the truth is, it demands something from you. And it demands something from me. It's not neutral. And that's why you rarely see neutral reactions to Jesus, right? Be it in the gospel narratives or be it in everyday life. Uh, amidst headlines this week about Roe v. Wade and the rising and crashing stock market and the war in Ukraine, I saw a headline in Wall Street Journal that caught my eye. It was entitled, The Supreme Court Hoists a Christian Flag. Did anyone else see it? It's a very brief article. It's not a headline I often see, so I read on, and I'm going to read part of it to you. The Supreme Court confronted the city of Boston recently says this, hundreds of times the city of Boston has allowed private groups to hoist their flags for a few hours in the square outside City Hall. It had never denied a request until it refused an applicant attempting to fly a Christian flag with a white cross. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit upheld the city of Boston's denial of the Christian flag, the circuit concluding that the government engages in government speech when it raises a third-party flag. And also, lifting a Christian banner could signal the city's embrace of that religion. And then, according to the article, that argument persuaded zero Supreme Court justices. They ruled unanimously 9-0 to overturn the ruling from the First Circuit. And they said this, Boston had historically allowed its flagpole to hoist a variety of flags, 
some connected to ideologies or moral or political entities or ideas. Uh, Even recently, they hoisted a gay pride flag, the flag of Ethiopia, and even a flag of the Metro Credit Union. The article said, apparently the city of Boston was open to engage in government speech to support gay pride, the country of Ethiopia, or greater Boston's banking institution, just not Jesus. Why is there such natural opposition to him? Friends, it's because his sovereignty is a threat to the human heart, to individual sovereignty. And we live in a day and age where self-sovereignty is the human ideal. The individual self projects itself as a king. It must not only be listened to, it must be obeyed, and not only obeyed, but embraced and applauded. And I find a deep irony here because we all have rulers and we are all ruled. Some are ruled by secular philosophies, some controlled by specific passions or desires. It could be sex, it could be money, it could be power. You no longer control sex, sex rules you. You no longer control money, money controls you. You no longer have a grip on power, power has become the hunger that drives you. Others are ruled by jobs and careers. Some are actually ruled by another person. Could be a spouse. Could be a rebellious child. Consumes every ounce of emotional and mental energy. Could be a friend with whom you have a broken friendship. It could be a wide variety of things. And in this sense, we all have a messianic secret. And we all have a Messiah complex. We're longing for some self-anointed thing, be it us or something outside us, to offer us life as it should be, to bring shalom. And Jesus' declaration is that all but him are faux messiahs. They're false rulers. They're false hopes. They cannot deliver lasting security or peace. And his divine sovereignty calls out. It's not a secret at all. It's not neutral towards you. It demands and pleads for your life, for you to surrender to him. He is shepherd. You are sheep. It'd be easy to see his messiahship as overbearing or malevolent. But lest we do that, remember that the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, which means this. Anything Christ asks of you, he has already done for you. Of course, he asks you to lay your life down. He's already done it for you. That's why we have a cross in our sanctuary. That's why we celebrate a feast of his sacrifice. He's a good shepherd. He's a benevolent king. And the evidence of his sovereign power in our lives, we see also embedded in this passage, there's rescue and security in peace. It's, it's not easy to see it here. It's like another secret that's embedded in there. There's seemingly superfluous information about when and about where this messianic conversation takes place. But in it, we'll find rescue and security. Look with me. 
in the opening verse, you first see the when. It tells us that this conversation took place at the time of the feast of dedication. Now, unlike other feasts which have ancient biblical roots in scripture and history, this particular feast was very recent. Uh, In 167 BC, during the in-between period between the Old Testament and New Testament, when, when biblical revelation was silent, but activity was immense. Okay, and during this time, uh, the Syrian uh, empire took over Jerusalem and Antiochus Epiphanes, he conquered it and he desecrated the temple by erecting an altar of Zeus. This incited the Jews who lived with that for two to three years. Finally, Judas Maccabeus led a revolt. They were far outmatched. And in a heroic struggle, they took back the temple. And afterwards, they reconsecrated it with an eight-day celebration of lights, Hanukkah. This became a joyous celebration, obviously, of this victory and this rescue and this renewal for God's people. It was a rededication distinguished by its emphasis on light. Listen, because it symbolized that the powers of darkness had been overturned and that they had been restored to newness of life, a living symbol of resurrection. This is when Jesus plainly declares his divine sovereignty during a feast indicative of what his sovereignty does. He revolted with passion and great violence to rescue us from the power of darkness. And then he himself raised from the dead, offering us newness of life that we might be raised with him. We witness this in the story in Acts that we just read. It's in the Acts of the Apostles throughout the book of Acts, but especially the resurrection of Dorcas of Tabitha. It's also in the rest of Scripture. Just listen to a few verses that follow in the New Testament. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ, Colossians 2. And when the end comes, Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed by him is death. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. Jesus is the Messiah. He lays down his life and faces death and darkness for you and me that we might rise to life in him. If this is who he is and this is what his power does, why would you oppose him? Extreme benevolence. The calls to bend the knee, embrace the secret, because he offers rescue and renewal. But there's, there's also the where right after the when in this passage. The opening verse also tells us where this conversation took place. And it says he walked in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Why Solomon? Of course Solomon. He was the one king of Israel whose 40-year reign was marked by security and prosperity and peace. When the people of God enjoyed the fact that they had a united kingdom, When the temple of God was built, were there threats around them on every side? Of course. But so long as their peacemaking and peacekeeping king was ruling on the throne, they felt deep security 
and peace. And this is where Jesus plainly declares his divine sovereignty at a place indicative of what his sovereignty does. He makes and keeps peace. And his people rest secure. Secure in his sovereign hand. Our passage in Revelation shows us this. I think it's fascinating that this is actually a picture into reality as it is right now. Like in this moment, we get to see what's happening in heaven here on earth. We see the testimony of those who are in his presence and they are spoken of as those who have been called out of the tribulation. And this is what they have to say about them in the presence of the Christ. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They will hunger no more, neither will they thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Security, peace. We see this in our very passage from the words of Jesus himself, don't we? Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Friends, there can be peace amidst the threats of life. In any season of life, we can have hope that we are guarded and that we are kept. And in our struggles too, our own backslidings, our lack of perseverance, we have hope in his preservation. The promise that even if we were to attempt to let go of him, he will never let go of us. It's eternal security. It's assurance of salvation because our hope is not ultimately in our promise to him, but in his promise to us. If he is for us, who can be against us? And if we're in his sovereign grip, we can let go, but never be let go of. I, I wonder, do any of you fish? Any anglers in the sanctuary? See some grins. I saw a couple of really brave, bold people who are just so proud of their skills. Right? You, you only know if you're a real good fisherman because you start calling yourself an angler. Right? Um, I won't pretend to be a seasoned fisherman. I married into a fly fishing family. My wife's cast could outdo anyone in the sanctuary. It's frustrating and embarrassing for me, but it just is what it is. Okay, I'm a slow learner. I try to overpower the rod. Does not work in fly fishing. But I enjoy our annual trip we make up to Idaho. My in-laws have a cabin on the Warm River, and we wade it, and then we go to surrounding rivers like the Snake and the Henry's Fork and it's basically fly fisherman's paradise with a guy who doesn't catch a whole lot. But one thing I've recognized is that as much as it is really flashy to have this beautiful cast, it's not catching. In order to master catching, you have to learn how to set the hook. Have you seen the hooks on flies? They're tiny. You don't look at the thing and say, I'm going to catch a fish on this guy. It's not a choking hazard. It's very small. 
But on the end of a hook, they'll put a barb. And the whole point of the barb, some are barbed, some are barbless. If you have a barbed hook, the whole point is that once you catch the fish, it cannot get away. It's stuck. And when you set the hook and you catch the fish, what happens? The fish is going to fight. It's going to struggle. It's going to jump. It's going to fly away downstream. It's going to scream upstream. It's going to do everything in its power to not surrender to you. And a good fisherman knows that the secret to catching and keeping the fish is that you hold firm and you hold strong and you hold gentle and you wait for the fish to wear itself out. You never let go. Friends, that's how our Messiah treats us. He won't let go. We won't be snatched out of his hand because he is the almighty sovereign Lord of all creation. Paul puts it this way. Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he actually says the love of the Christ. He's emphasizing his messiahship. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword or danger No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am certain that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hallelujah. He is the Messiah, and his divine sovereignty guarantees that once you are his, you are secure in his sovereign grip. If this is who he is, if this is what he does with his power, why would you oppose him? Bend the knee. You not only receive rescue and newness of life, you receive eternal security and peace forevermore. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you who heroically save us in Christ also promise to keep us in him. There could be some here who have been fighting your rule in their life for a long time, and I pray they would be like a fish that tires out and find that you've hooked them. And I pray for others who have been running away that they would return. There's no safer place to be than in your presence. We give you thanks for that in Christ's name. Amen.